My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. Hello, Bea. Hello, Jay. I hear you've been thinking about something all day. I've, I've been Please, thinking a lot. Yeah, I've oh, been good. thinking a lot. <laughs> Can't uh, wait. I, um, well, there's a lot going on in our world right now. Um, sure. Quite, quite a bit, uh, particularly in Southwest Asia or the Middle East. Uh, and so I know some of the things that we've talked about since this has started, just in our personal exchanges, is um the responses of people that are not directly involved right in in kind of the forms those responses take um and um you know you and i we've talked about holding the tension between uh well there's two things you can look at the specific aspect of of a, a of a you know a geopolitical uh conflict but then there's also, um, I think something you and I are both conflicted about because we've talked about this more than once, is the conflict between political action and uh, inward inner work. Yeah. In one would say, why is there conflict? I, maybe there doesn't have to be. Um, I think there there is, you know, in our in our waking minds anyway, there is a conflict. Um, because to me, uh, you know, if you engage in the political conflict, uh, it's almost like you're just throwing logs on a fire. Uh but then it seems like the downside or the shadow side of, well, I'm just going to sit with this and uh, go and turn, go, go inward. And uh, I, I guess the extreme of that would be the ostrich with his head in the sand. Right. Uh, um, uh, th- those are, those are two ways, you know, uh, extreme ways to look at them, I guess, when actually I, I do believe both are, both if if done in a balanced way or appropriate but i'm not uh, i'm not well i mean you know uh we um we do have responsibilities you know i think on an external level and we have responsibilities on an eternal level i think the thing that you and i both agree on is that probably the most impactful way that um we go about we can go about addressing the external world is uh through the internal world because that is where um real fundamental change happens it happens internally uh and so but you know i i guess i'm struggling with how to balance that does this mean that you know for one what do you think about um, how to achieve that balance or or um, 
what what gets us to that balance. Right. So I've seen this erupt on my Instagram page because I quoted, um, well, I often quote uh, somebody uh, of the people I read speaking about this very issue. And of course, there's a division between, I think it was a James Holman quote. And as you know, James Holman was more likely to to push you out, you know, uh, saying that there had to be something done of action in the world. Um, but if you look at least at the quotes that I found from people like, well, James Hollis is a very uh, big example of this. And, and Jung, Jung talks about this as well, but Ram Das as well. The notion that what you see often is people taking action that is driven by their wounds, right? By their past, by whatever, whatever. And so the famous, I think I've quoted it before, but I think it's perfect, you know, with Ram Das saying that it's funny how many angry people you see at peace rallies. <laughs> and so you, you do take the problem, I think, and this is where I do think, and this is what I try to argue, but not argue, I was having a conversation with someone on my Instagram page, um, that all too often we take on causes or we take on whatever ideals that are very much tied to some some parts of ourselves that are disowned or that were wounded or that were whatever, you know, we all have histories. And so I can't, first of all, I cannot imagine doing outer work into you do some inner work. I just don't think it's a good thing because mm -hmm. you will take that kind of anger. You'll take that kind of uh, work that you should be doing in the inner world and take it and project it outside and you'll find an enemy. And I think this is what really disturbs me. I don't know about you, but what disturbs me is the finding of enemies everywhere. Um, and I think if you do the inner work first, maybe I'm being very idealistic here because I think it's really hard to ever get to a point where you are this actualized you can at least at least not not be as damning of the other because you've already understood okay this issue is triggering whatever i have in my psyche that is that is unresolved right and i don't i just i, I think that it's not an either or again it's a both and but i would think that the first thing the first step would be do a little bit of work on yourself figure it out you see this on university campuses there's a lot erupting right now where um you know, people are just screaming about one side or the other side. or And a lot of people are making comments that maybe yeah, what I find incredible is the idea that people should be commenting on anything in the outer world uh, where you, you know, you're not even aware of what's going on there. Really, you're sort of taking ideas from people that are telling you. And of course, that's going to be conditioned by already by the perspective that you have and who you're who you're listening to on a regular basis. So <clears throat> there's a lot of confusion out there. But what you find, and you do find this a lot on university campuses, and I know this because I was on a university campus for many years, and I did this, was the, you know, pick up a cause and oh, rah, 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 and go out there and bond with a bunch of other people and be angry and try to change things. Now, you do need change. I'm not saying you don't. But again, I would like to see maybe that in concert with you just sort of working out, well, why am I so angry about this particular cause? Because it's kind of interesting. You and I may not agree on what causes are worth fighting for. You know, I may want to save penguins. You might want to, whatever. We'll each go to something that for some reason has sparked something. Now, I'm interested in that part. Like, why? Why are you interested in doing this and not that in terms of fixing something in the outer world? That is an interesting question to me. But, uh, you know, practically every quote, I quoted him again today with uh, Jung uh, saying, and I think volume 18 of the collected works about how we are constantly finding the problem out there and you have to begin with the problem in here. Because if you don't, again, you make an enemy of a whole bunch of things, now, groups of people, your neighbor, whatever, it doesn't matter, a political ideology. It's really important to own what, why, why the feeling is being, um, um, yeah, why, why are you feeling that way?
Well, uh, you said something that made me think, you know, there was the third position that we don't talk about. And I don't mean, you know, the transcendent third. Yeah. I mean, the manufactured third. And um, that would be, well, um, because there's another voice that often comes out in these in, in political conflicts. And that is, well, both sides are equally bad and both sides are equally good. And uh, why don't we just all love each other and uh, bliss out? And um, yeah. uh, I find that one equally problematic um, because it shows a, a, a complete disengagement. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I kind of think it's uh, a cheap way out. Um, well, well, let me, let me stop you there, okay? A cheap way out. So I'm now thinking of Joseph Campbell, one of our favorites as well, who talks about that the world is always a mess, has always been a mess, will always be a mess. And we're not probably going to be able to fix that mess, but we no. do have to rejoice in the sorrow. Like one of the problems we have is accepting, like accepting that some things maybe cannot be changed. And we have to be really clear about that. Some things cannot be changed. There are things you can change, but there are rather large things that have a history that we are kind of living through. And we have as human beings on this earth at this moment, wherever we are, have limited ability to change, right? And so the next step I would say, and I think he's quoting a lot of Eastern thinkers, is your ability to accept that that's the case. Now that's not both sidesism. Both sidesism drives me crazy. Right. It's insane because often both sidesism tries to, you know, you're weighing things that are so dramatically dis different that uh, it, it it's crazy. So that's a different issue. But there are things we cannot change mm -hmm. <laughs> that no matter what we want. Sure. And so then you have to adopt the attitude, which is in light of the fact that I cannot change this. How do I accept it? And that's actually good practice for accepting a bunch of things in your own life that you feel are terrible because we all have things in our lives that don't work very well. And this is goes back to the idea that you know the suffering and the the uh, the suffering and what's the other thing the pain and the suffering the pain you have and then the suffering you add with your thoughts right so at some point you're going to have to decide do I live my life in total rage that things didn't work out the way I wanted them to work out for example on a personal level and this gets into some really really dodgy areas because you know I, I see this again on my page you know having a social media account that gets a lot of people on there talking you have to be careful with what you quote, quote because you're quoting out of context. But one of the things that will spur a lot of react, create a lot of reaction is the idea that you have to take responsibility for a lot of your life. That doesn't mean you have to take responsibility for abuse. That does not have to, it doesn't mean that kind of thing, but it does mean that you have to take responsibility for the kind of reaction you have, right? Uh, and, you know, Hollis really pushes the envelope. I think we talked about this before when he says to to not forgive your your abuser. And in, in this case, he was talking about uh, husband, wife, where there was, a, you know, the, the, somebody's holding on to pain for so long. But so to not forgive that person, okay, whether they're abusers or not, we don't know, um, is being tied to that person for the rest of your life. And you're tied through the the hatred, the anger, um, and so part of it you're doing to work out to resolve that that kind of bind that isn't really healthy, and and again you know we get into the 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 idea this this has come up so many times condoning versus accepting uh, all this stuff. So I just want to put that in there because I think that there are things that are larger than we are, and we can't assume that we can fix them. And so then what do you do? And what 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 a lot of what people do is they just get angry. They get angry at the other side. They get angry at uh, whoever's delivering the news. Uh, they get angry at whatever they can find. And I don't think that's helpful either. So I don't know if that's what you were, you were saying or if that's um, what you think about that part. Yeah, you said something interesting about making an enemy uh, of of people, of sides, of um 
you know, would you agree that if you're doing inner work, that um, because when you do that, you're starting to kind of withdraw that um, that animus um, that uh, from from the external world, that you start getting insights into the other, that you start getting insights about what's driving and motivating the other would you would you agree with that yeah yeah absolutely well i mean we're all human right and so you realize that yeah yeah that's that's the way that i often feel um i feel like uh not only am i withdrawing that that um um that power whatever it is that i'm giving to it but then i start seeing it a little bit more clearly and if you're at least able to get to the point to where you can understand not that it's necessarily um um justifiable but that you understand how people might be caught up in something yeah uh it 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 helps me anyway um uh even even further that yeah uh, well, no i totally understand for, for example this is where i think working with your range of feelings uh, is really helpful so if you understand that rage is often connected to another emotion let's say that's a simple one rage often can uh, connected to sadness or a feeling of disempowerment or so many things. I think it is harder if you're really honest with yourself. And, they, you know, we talk about this a lot in my group, right? That it does take a lot of uh, accepting parts of yourself that you don't really want to accept. You have to be really humble about this, about yourself in the sense that there's a lot of stuff that is very human and you can't reject it. It's just part of being human. But I think if you understand that that's how you function, then you shouldn't really assume that people are very different. Maybe their their rage and their sadness is coming from a different place, but it's still the same thing, right? Um, but does that as as a person help me? It has helped me, but do I still feel anger at certain things? I mean, this is a thing; it's never ending, right? I still mm -hmm. get it. I see certain things on the news, and I oh, you know, um, and then I have to sit back. If I'm conscious in that moment, I sit back and say, okay, what is the real issue? What is this the reason? this particular issue is winding me up so much. Now that's a great entry point to figuring out a whole bunch of stuff, right? For example, disempowerment. If you have felt disempowered, uh, you were feeling disempowered at some point in your life as a child or whatever, that motif may came up, come up a lot, right? So he here's an example. If you were bullied as a child, right? You will probably sympathize um, a lot with the victim over and over again, you're going mm -hmm. to find, and you might even make victims of people that are not really victims, but you're not going to make them into a victim because you see a victim everywhere. Uh, and so just knowing that means that maybe, maybe before doing that, you take a step and you say, oh, okay, that, that bullied part of me has just come up and I'm seeing someone bully someone else, or, you know, this could be, that could be projected onto countries, onto groups, you, you name it. Um, and yeah, that's part of the story. And so recognizing it may allow you that space. And I think we've talked about this before. All you're doing is looking for some space, right? Where you're not reactive and when you're not. Uh... That that reminds me of something I think I see a lot of in, in the U.S. anyway. And, and that's kind of um, what I might term, you know, a, a person, a persecution fantasy. Yeah. Uh, um, where uh individuals groups feel i am not saying there's no reality to uh some things uh but i seem to find this it seems a lot in in religion um it seems to be a big thing the you know like 
the kind of the theology I grew up around was that uh, the world was anti-Christian. Right. Well, I mean, sure, you can find incidences in history where Christians were persecuted. And, you know, there's probably places in the world right now where that does happen. That may be a fact. Uh, but another fact is, is that Christians have done a great deal of persecuting themselves and are still today. Yeah. What I think with this whole persecution and, and seeing the world as the enemy or seeing a they, it doesn't have to be religion, but, um, you know, you often see the, the word they out there, not necessarily as a, as an identification, but as this. Uh, ambiguous power out there that is um, uh, controlling everything. Um, they want to dispower us. They, you know, and what I find is, is, is I think that is a bit, um, I think that's a big misunderstanding of what actually is going on because I think, and what I've thought about is that um, what people actually feel disempowered why people actually feel disempowered a lot is because they're giving their power away and so when people give their power away that does fuel a system of types nice. you know the, the power uh, systems thrive on power and people give up their power well what does that mean uh well it means exactly what you and i were talking about earlier of um uh being drawn into certain things um so I think really if the world is anti anything uh it's anti individuation that would be a better story mm -hmm. uh to tell yourself that yeah. your um your now when I say individuality or your inner or your freedom your inner freedom I don't mean that in the sense uh that like you know uh we speak about freedom so much in the US but I'm talking about inner freedom and uh, a person that does not have inner freedom is going to have an experience in the world where they're often being oppressed in some way. Uh, and again, I'm talking about mostly like uh, what we hear uh, from religious and political uh, groups and leaders. Um, and, and I think the antidote to that would be inner work, because whenever you do inner work, um, you are actually withdrawing that power from the world and bringing it back to where it belongs. Now, I'm not saying that, um, you know, this is some permanent state we reach or anything. I mean, it's a, something we have to do throughout life. Uh, but I, I think that is the real persecution out there, the, the real one. I'm not saying that actual persecution does not exist. I'm not saying that. I know it does. Yeah. But for the majority of us, like, uh, you know, if you're if you're uh, in the, uh, America and you're you're white, heterosexual and uh, a member of some Christian organization, you have a pretty um, you have a pretty strong power base here. Right. So it, it seems irrational to say that right. you might be being persecuted. I think the persecution is actually within yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What, no, no, absolutely. what do you think of? Well, I think people come up with persecution complexes or, or who, who feel that there's a group. I always get a little nervous when people start talking about a group controlling everything. First of all, there isn't a group in the world that's that powerful and could keep their mouth shut enough that we wouldn't find out about it. 
Um, but I think when you engage in that kind of thinking, we're going back to what you're saying. So the way I look at it is the disempowerment motif come up, comes up again, and you're almost fighting against an inner father. So you might want to work a little bit on that, whatever your father issues were, your mother issues. I mean, these are parental issues that you're actually probably uh, pinning onto a group, uh, an organization or something. And again, th these are childhood issues that have not been resolved. Um, on the indiv individuation uh, path, I think that's really important. And this is what also Campbell talked about, Beyond Young and other people talked about, that people don't want you to individuate because then you're not going to go to church on Sunday and you're not going to marry the right person that they want you to marry. And you're not going to do the things that make you a compliant citizen who votes the way they you're supposed to vote, who does. People who do who are individuated as much as you can be, okay? Because <laughs> I don't think it, there's ever an end, as you say, are probably going to follow their own path in many ways. You know, they're going to maybe not follow the, the rules of the way that society might want you. And I'm not talking about people who are criminal, you know, engaging in criminal activity. No, no, I'm talking right. about that you're, this is very common in families, right? They, they, you know, the family that wants you to be a lawyer or wants you to be this or successful in a certain way because security is what's valued. Maybe if you're in that path, you say, no, actually, I really don't, that's not my value system. And that's actually a really big thing. You're about what you value, right? And I think the the, the thing that, that keeps coming back to me is that the biggest work you can do, and I guess I say this as I get older, it really, really becomes clear to me. Um, the biggest thing you can do for yourself and for the world is figure out what you really value. Like, what is your highest value? Or as Paul Tillich said, your highest concern, because that's your God. Okay, so figure it out. Because that may mean that you will have to separate from people that don't like what you're doing, like that maybe it is it's a person that leaves a perfectly fine marriage or leaves a perfectly fine career in the eyes of the world, right? But in the inner world says, no, that is not where I belong. That's not where I want to be. Uh, and you are going to, and you, you'll encounter from people primarily, I think, who are, are very close to you. That's the first thing. Like parents are great examples of this because their fear takes over. And it's like, well, how can you not want to be a lawyer? And how can you? And then in certain cultural groups, a lot of my friends will tell me, you know, that the parents are particularly stringent, you know, uh, about this is the only path you can follow. And you do not take a poetry class because that doesn't end up in, in a paycheck or whatever. So I think individuation really does mean um, following something that actually may put you in opposition with the people you love, first of all, which is really hard, right? Um, and secondly, maybe in the society that values, and in that case, I'm not saying, again, you're walking out and doing something that damages the society. You're just refusing to play whatever game the society has decided is the game, whether it's making money or, you know, or maybe even like the the the, the society that, that says, well, you have to do so many hours of, of social work and you think, well, that's not the way I want to contribute. Uh, so to me, yeah, the biggest question we all have is what do we value above all? What What are we passionate about? And what's shocking to me, and I don't know if you find this, and you can tell me you you, you work obviously with, with adolescents, but even in your own circle, what I find most shocking <laughs> is that people don't even know that. They can't answer that question. They don't know what they're valuing, okay? They may value like, you know, like I do, like my family. Of course, that's a given sometimes. Sometimes people don't. I certainly do. Um, but I'm talking about the things that drive them, that make them feel passionate, that get up and go, yes. I mean, for you, I know it's music. For me, it's definitely books and writing and the imaginal world. Um but yeah, there's so many people that don't, they'll say, well, I don't know what I, what I, what I like. I don't know what I'm passionate about. And I keep thinking, well, yeah, if you go to the inner world, you actually start finding out. It's, it's an interesting thing if you work metaphorically with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the thing that I would think is most important here. And when you do that, I think your inclination or your obsession to change things out in the world becomes less. 
because you are so concerned with transforming that part of yourself. And ultimately, what can you give to the world? The part of you that isn't complex and angry and going around screaming and going around, uh, you know, making the other person the enemy. I can't imagine a bigger gift. You really, you know, my books are not going to, they'll disappear. I will disappear. Everything. But while you are here, if you can just stop adding to the burden that's around you, you probably, and part of it is if happy people don't add those burdens and happy people, I mean, that's a stupid word because you're going to go through ups and downs. I mean, maybe what I'm saying is people who are not, um, who are engaged, who really are really in love with whatever they're doing, they actually, and, and that doesn't have to be a job. That's the other thing. It can be what you do on the side because you have to make a living. There are many ways to do this, but that type of person doesn't add to the burden because they're just so involved in that world and 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 enjoying it that there's no need to find enemies maybe i'm being a little bit naive here but that that is my that is the way i look at it uh so the the thing that i would encourage people to do is just ask that question what do you value just talking about things that that happen in our lives or happen globally having a response to that and what we do <clears throat> as far as inner works concerned but we really didn't address the outer work of that do you have any ideas what ideas do you have about how that takes shape okay so first of all i wanted to point that out that one of the things i see by quoting quotes out of context because you can't quote entire books on instagram or you know, wherever I'd quote, is this immediate reaction people have when you say, do the inner work. Immediately, someone will say, well, what about the outer work? Well, we have to do things in society, as James Holman says, or I, of course you have to do things. And in, in, I, th I think that's, to me, it's not an either or issue. And this is, again, where we get into problems with either or. It's either this or that. I think you, it's a both and. I do think like therapists, I think I've said this, that like therapists are, are asked to do the inner work so that when they work with, with their clients, they're not, or the patients, they're not bringing their own stuff to the table. All I think that I do think that the inner work is a, is a primary step, but then once you do that, how can you not, <laughs> once you find the, the, the issues where you're stumbling, how can you not see them in the world? And how can you not a have compassion for that and B want to change it? I mean, I think they go hand in hand. So it's not just about saying, well, I see this. It is now I must take action. But where are you taking the action from? So weirdly, I was just listening to Richard Rohr's. Uh, he gave this speech, Richard Rohr being the Franciscan priest who's published a lot of, a lot of books. Uh, and he gave this speech in 1991, I think, in Cincinnati, which is really interesting because what he said is that the best contribution Americans have given in the spiritual uh, realm has been the 12-step program. And he thought that, the reason that was is that we're all addicts. Basically, people who are, that are addicts in a visible way, we can kind of all, you know, criticize and say, oh, they're weak. But actually, we're all addicted to ways of thinking that perhaps create problems, right? And he says, what we tend to do is we tend to find the people that can hold our addictions. And then we can, you know, 
um, be very dismissive or or whatever approach you're going to take to it. But his whole point is what we're really addicted to, all of us, is our basically the, the places in our unconscious where we haven't resolved fundamental conflicts. And so they become patterns of thinking where you, you know, demonize another side or once you start doing inner work, it's impossible not to look outside in the world and say, yes, you must, you're in the world. I mean, I, I'm good luck to the people that can live outside of the, the society, but most of us live in a social realm and we do see their problems. So I can't dis- divorce one from the other. In fact, the more you do inner work, I think the more you feel that you have to change certain things uh, in the outer world, because you understand that. <laughs> there are so many places where you you're not functioning and it's reflected in the politics that you see and the societal uh, dysfunction that you see and in the world that you see. But I think we can't get away. And I think this is where he's brilliant. And I recommend everybody find the book or the lecture, which is called Breathing Underwater, uh, where he really talks about, um, and he was doing this in 1991 and he was attacking uh, the United States, American, attacking the United States dependency on oil, which allows you to, in that point, 1991, if everybody you know, thinks back, mm-hmm. is when the first Iraq war happened. And how we justify all our addictions, our addictions to comfort, our addictions to 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 whatever we think, that we will then go out in the world and, and make uh, a grab, <laughs> say grab or fight for, without thinking, well, where, where's that coming from? Where's our addiction coming from? And so it's a really honest. I, I, I when I was reading it, and he, he he questions. He's a Franciscan priest who's questioning the Catholic priest, the 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 uh, not the Catholic uh, priest, the Catholic Church, talking about how the addiction to being right, the addiction to certain ways of being, have disallowed their coming to the table and admitting the wrongs they've done in sexual abuse cases, for example. So he's really he's, he he comes to the table with everything, including his own church, and so. When I was listening to that, I thought, that's it. That's that's the thing, that once you are honest with yourself about where your patterns of addiction lie, right, in the interior world, in your thinking, and the way you approach things, then I think you approach the world in a different way. You might not approach it in the adversarial, I'm right and you're wrong, because honestly, the biggest addiction we have, and I just had an argument with my son, so I know this happens, is our, our pattern of thinking and wanting to be right. And sometimes wanting to be right creates problems that are unnecessary. And so in, in the current world, we're, we're in the middle of a crisis. We're always in the middle of a crisis. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting listening to this talk today, which was uh, recorded in 1991. It sounded like the crisis is still the same um, in terms of, you know, uh, being being unkind to immigrants, being, you know, the, the world things we're getting, the world conflicts we're getting involved in. <clears throat> so this happened in my group. We were all getting, you know, opinionated about things. And the idea is, can we just sit with those two, with those, the idea that, two things can be true at the same time. The things are so complicated that you cannot just decide that I'm going to make a comment and then that will be the whole thing. And uh, one thing he points to, which I love, which is that the people who are doing a lot of inner work know how to listen without jumping to defense, to to to, to defensive postures, just saying, okay, well, I, I now feel like I'm being attacked because I, I think this way or that. But, but think about this, right? In the last let's say heavy seven years or now past that, but you know, we've, we've gone through five years worldwide, you know, from Brexit into the UK to the whole uh, Trump phenomenon, the opening to, you know, white supremacy and a whole bunch of things that make us all uncomfortable. It is at the heart. People will hold on to whatever position they have in order to be right, because they can't give up the notion that they were wrong. And that is frightening to me because I see it in me. I have the same addictions, just mm-hmm. maybe being put some out. So I don't know what you think about that. What do you think about that uh, thing? 
thinking? Well, I think first of all, that uh, if you're doing inner work, that uh, the way that you're going to approach the situations in the outer world, that you're still going to approach them, but you're going to probably approach, approach them in a different way, mm-hmm. in a, a way that maybe doesn't that doesn't harm others to the degree to the degree that they can if whenever you know you you have that internal response to act and you don't do inner work you're motivated by something lower I think I say lower meaning you know a a more primitive drive yeah Um, I guess is the way that I would say it or unconscious like you're driven more unconscious unconscious wounding right so that you go out there really fighting yourself but you've you've now projected it onto the world and yeah, look, that that still could you, you still could change things. I'm not saying you can't, but I, I wonder if you might be more integrated and, and your response might be more healing to the outer world if you're not taking it from that stance. Because if you do, having said that, I don't I think the outer world uh issue is so important. You can't be here and not engage with the outer world and not try to make it better. Uh the problem is where we're going to agree on what's better or not, right? Because Mm-hmm. Uh, many people will take different views, right? <laughs> oh, well, you know, uh, some people think, well, you can't help the poor because they're not helping themselves. That's, in my view, no, that's ridiculous uh, because we live in a, an integrated society where people have been damaged by the structures we set up. Or, you know, you can think of so many issues where people take the other side and are quite convinced that this this is true. Uh, so this is where it can get a little bit complicated. But I think, honestly, I go back to what Joseph Campbell said, that if you are always looking out to for the other this this isn't going to be a problem because you are always looking out for the well-being of the other. And so it it it, it, it will predispose you less to maybe going out there and trying to make, um, but you know, then you have the extreme. I don't know what you think about this, where people are constantly saving everything, right? And we're not sure what they're saving and, and it it could make people feel disempowered. So it's complicated, but I will I will say that I cannot see participating in the world and not doing and not doing something to better Mm -hmm. i mean you can start from the very act of voting which i think everybody in a democratic society should be doing Uh, and i'm glad that australia makes you do this right to the like to other levels which is what are you doing with your money are you are you sharing it you know because we do have a problem with people not sharing uh what are you doing with your time that's a resource you know are you giving some of it uh to to something that is in need uh but yeah those two and i don't do you think Jung ever like i'm even taking when what i quote it's often people like Jung that I'll quote saying, you know, you must do this inner work. Do you think Jung ever really thought that people shouldn't go go out and try to change things? I mean, I, what do you think about that? I don't know. And I think one thing that I've thought, it might not have been a huge emphasis for his culture at that time, because, you know, he's, he's from Switzerland. And, uh, I, I don't know. I never, I never, really read anything where he explicitly talks about that but does talk i uh, quite a bit how you know we're always in the business of redeeming ourselves and uh and that's an internal journey and and that through that uh it redeems the world nowhere have i read anywhere within uh jung's work that uh where he talks about explicitly anyway doing outer work or or getting caught up in that in and so, you know, he he was more about the inner work is what he put em- emphasis on and in, in saying that, you know, the redeemer within will redeem the world. 
Although, I mean, if you think about it, he was the agent 488 for the CIA, who was the CIA. Sure. So he was helping oh, I'm not saying... way he could, right? Right, right. <laughs> and he, he went through two world wars. So he, in a way, was seeing just how crazy people could become. But I think his argument was that people became that crazy because they were driven by unconscious uh, unconscious longings, unresolved wounds that allowed them to 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 get to allow a war to substitute for what was going on inside. Right. Um, so he's giving you a model because in one way, I think what he's saying is if you don't resolve that, you are going to continue having these crazy uh, conflagrations because really at the bottom, what you're doing is you're trying to resolve an inner problem in the outer world. And I think collectively we do that. This is not only individually we do it, but the collective is made up of us as individuals. So the more consciousness we have as individuals, the less likely that we're willing to project or willing to 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 take that route. Of course, this is, you know, we're human, so it's going to happen. There's uh, not saying we're going to get to a point where we won't, but. Right. But, you know, I, I think the the Jungian uh, kind of goal, I think the thing that Jungians really grasp at as far as our outer work, and this is what I read and this is what I see. It's almost like it's a numbers game uh, with individuation that if enough people are doing the inner work, then you're going to see a different world. And, I believe and, that to be true. Do you not believe that to yeah. be true? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I but uh, but, I but, but what we were talking about was whether or not there was anything ever expressed explicitly by Jung as far as what we were talking about earlier, about being engaged in yeah. in the world, in the political systems and, and how those work. I mean, I don't remember anything particularly in any Jungian literature, really, I mean, maybe Hillman, maybe, maybe Hillman. Oh, Hillman, definitely. No, no, Hillman yeah. thought that there was not enough uh, political and social engagement. And I, and I think he's right. I think there was an imbalance, maybe, and it needed to be redressed. But Hillman absolutely uh, pointed that out. I, I think with, with Jung, the, the criticism, he might have shied away from it afterwards. If you remember in the early 1930s, he seemed to not have divorced himself from the Nazis. And it's in its kind of its in, in, incipient form. And I think he he later came to regret that, uh, not understanding. And this is what, a criticism that's often leveled at him. And it wasn't until later that, you know, it was revealed, in fact, very recently, that he was, in fact, working for the Americans um, uh, in, in informing them about Hitler and what he knew about uh, Hitler's personality. I think it was more he was advising them on a psychological level about that. But yes, no, I mean, I don't see it anyway. I don't see that he's written maybe, I mean, I haven't read all of the, all of the collected works, but I, I don't see maybe somebody can tell us, they can write to me, write to, you know, write to send an email or on social media. Um, but I haven't seen it. But I, but I, but I, but I don't think it shouldn't be done. I think this is, for me, my problem in when people get um, upset about this is that I think I can't see, I can't divorce the notion that if you're doing inner work, you're not going to do outer work. I, oh. I just, I can't see it because you just become so aware of where things are not functioning. I think it's just the way you might approach that outer work that changes. Right. So, so here's the thing. Why did I start putting all these, these quotes all over the place? Because I was seeing very early on, right. That uh, what I was seeing on social media was insane, that the conversations were very adversarial, that they were very, um, yeah, they, they weren't really looking to resolve anything more like I want to be right. And so I thought, I'm just going to put these these thoughts from great people that I see from, you know, spiritual traditions, from obviously psychoanalytical traditions, 
uh, every once in a while, someone will come on and try to have an argument. And I said, look, I'm not here to do that. You do, yeah, this is just, I don't want my energy there. First of all, because I wish you'd go back to the book because that then you can have a better conversation with the writer because that's what writers do. They're attempting to have a conversation with you via the book. But I just don't want that. That's not what I want to put out there. In a way, I see the Sophia Cycles idea as a corrective to that kind of uh, kind of thinking. It's like, just here's some ideas. Let's consider them. Let's, yeah, you know. But no, I don't need to get into an argument about whether you think it's right or wrong. Or uh, I'd rather you have that conversation with that writer or maybe get together with some people when you can discuss a book and not a thought that I might have put out there. So anyway, it's not that that's changing anything because, I mean, I would argue that books have changed me. I mean, it made me look at things sure. in a very different way. So I do believe in the power of books to 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 change in ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's really a counter narrative to what I see out there, which is just this incredible need to be right uh, to the point that you will say degrading things to people you don't know and actually even threaten them, which is even more frightening to me. The ability people have of just jumping on and, and suddenly saying, well, you know, I don't like what you've said, so now I'm going to threaten you. I mean, it's crazy. And this is the kind of world we're living in. So any I, I agree it's a number. We'll, we'll maybe wrap this this part of the conversation this way. It is a numbers game. The more the more of us who who try to do this, I think the better we'll be. I mean, that's my hope. Otherwise, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what any answer is, but that's the way I'm looking at it. I don't wanna know the pain of the fire's golden flame. I don't wanna slip and fall on the ground I learned to crawl. On the ground I learned to crawl This must be So switching gears a bit, um, what are you working on right now? Speaking of working, what's 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 in your going through your mind? Uh, I'm still writing and uh, I'm scheduled to go back into the studio uh, to start recording uh, other stuff. I've got um, still three songs that have been recorded uh, that, well, two of them are mine and one of them is my niece's um, and uh, waiting to get those mixed and out there. But I'm I'm still writing and, you know, in, in the process of doing this uh, initially, whenever I started going back into the studio last fall, uh, a year ago, uh, my whole idea around doing an album was doing music that I had recorded from about 2019 to uh, uh, 2021. And uh, that's that's been not at all what it is uh it's been i i'm i i feel like i need to work on the freshest stuff and because i keep writing i'm actually doing something i never really thought i would have the opportunity to but i really wanted to was that uh writing an album as i go along oh, yeah. um and uh so uh i'm really enjoying this process of of doing it that way it's great that is exciting actually because i think that's one of the things that um when you're, you know, because right now I'm working sort of on the research side, but I always research before I start writing my novels, although I have a general idea, but then I do a lot of research. 
And that's the part where you, we feel a little bit insecure because you're just reading and reading, but the, the story isn't jolling yet. Because for mm-hmm. me, anyway, the story jobs in one big go. But but I, before that, I've done a lot of, you know, poking around. And I'm so undisciplined in my reading and in my own research that, you know, one day I'm going down one path. And this, is what, this is where I know I'm an intuitive. Then the next day, something else grabs my attention. I lose the other path. And um, yeah, it can get a little bit hairy. But I realize at the end that it's a process I really enjoy. I mean, what I really, really love about the whole thing is going down all these crazy paths. And somehow, I don't know for you, this is what happens with music, but for me, with story, something is working that I don't know in the background mm-hmm. that is putting things pieces together. And it's only one day that I wake up and I think, oh, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote a great book about, uh, he's the guy that wrote um, The Legend of uh, Bag of Vance. Um, he wrote a great book on writing. Uh, I don't generally read a book on writing, but the two that I really appreciate is Stephen King wrote a great book on writing and so did Stephen uh, Pressfield. And he talks about that you have to know the ending. If you don't know the ending to the story, don't even start. And I know this because I've thrown away a couple of novels where I didn't yeah. know the ending and I tried to get to the ending and it was they were, they were terrible. And so that's what I don't know right now. So there's a little bit of anxiety. I'm going, what's, what's the ending? I, I know I went ahead, but I have to wait. And, the, and incubation is important. So The, the confidence... Uh... Um, and the patience, uh, uh, and just the, the self-assuredness it must take, um, uh, to be in the place that you are. Um, well, I mean, no, nobody cares. So, I mean, let's, let's be honest and, and nobody's waiting for my book. <laughs> so it's a lot easier. <laughs> so it's going, give me a book. No, it's fine. So if you have the, if you have no, the, it's, yeah, yeah, that's you know. how I see it though. You have, I mean, I've been in those places too, where, um, you know, I feel this drive to write something and I've gone through this for a long time in the past where I wasn't writing music, but I was so um, connected to everything I was listening and I was so moved by everything I was listening. I was like, this is, this has got to be generating something that just (laughs) isn't there yet. And I've got to wait and, and, but I understand, like I could very easily, I could see how very easily, um, you could uh, resort to, um, you know, some insecurity yeah. during that. I mean, I could see that. I, I could, I could I have to say when I was younger, I guess I'm just old now, it doesn't matter. But when I was younger, I think that affected me. I think as I get older, I don't care because I'm not really aiming for anything. If something, right. if a book materializes, it does. And and if it doesn't, I don't care. I mean, it's there's so right. many things that I'm engaged with that I, I, if something does, and then I also, I'm very, uh, there's a couple of books that I wrote completely and friends have written, uh, read, sorry, and said, well, why don't you publish it anyway? It's like, no, I, I don't, they're, they're not what what's true to what I want to do. I was playing around. And this is the thing, I think creativity is play. And for me, this is play. So mm-hmm. if it doesn't lead anywhere, I, I will bore you with, as I do, right. you and all my group members, I'm a family, about the million things that I found along the way. And that's really, um, that's what really keeps me going. The, the story just happens because in the end, I think I have to justify my reading life because I spent all my life reading. So why, <laughs> this is why I post quotes on social media. You know, I often get asked, you know, where, where are you getting all this? And what I try to make a point of, this is all I've ever done. I've read mm-hmm. and read and read and read and took notes. And basically that's been my whole life in some way, shape or form since I was, you know, very young. So that's, that's what gets, that's what motivates me. I love it. I love thinking. And I'm going to tell you what I'm reading right now. And in, in this case, and this is for the people who ask me on social media, a lot of times, what are you reading? What's going on? Um, I'm going to share my screen because what I've done is I've actually put it together so that I can remember what I'm doing, uh, because that that's uh, that's sometimes a problem. I can't remember. All right. Okay. So here we are. Can you see? I can see. Okay. All right. So I, 
there are there are a number of people that I'm reading at the moment. And so the first book that I came across, you know, since we last talked was Karen LeGrice. Karen LeGrice, Karen LeGrice. I hope I'm saying his first name right. Uh, he is an English writer who <clears throat> actually lives in the States. And he is um, a professor in the Pacific Graduate Program in Archetypal Psychology. And I love his old, I've read all of his books. I'm a really big fan of his work, The Archetypal Cosmos over here. I absolutely love The Rebirth of the Hero is the one I tell people if they haven't encountered him, read that one first. Archetypal Reflections as well. But he's just published this thing called The Lion Will Become Man. And, and it's about his own journey and, and how um, it really is a kind of red book type of idea, what, what he went through. Um, about 20 years ago, the dreams he was having where he was really struggling both physically uh, and emotionally to try to to try to kind of connect himself. And uh, it's really interesting if you like alchemy. I do. That's part of what I'm um, working on right now uh, in terms of a book. It, it's not if I had to recommend a book, I would say don't start with this one. Definitely read The Rebirth of the Hero. This is a much more personal book. It doesn't do the he does connect the, the his own journey to um alchemy in general but I, I just don't think that it's it's as powerful as something as we like the rebirth of the hero but if you're interested in uh red book type journeys then this is a book you want to read so that's how i started and then i mean just since we last talked uh, I, what i do recommend to everybody and unfortunately i recommend it and then i apologize it's alchemy and psychotherapy by uh edited by dale mathers and the reason i apologize it's it's published by rutledge which is a great publishing house that publishes incredible books I would love to recommend, but they are so expensive. This book is about $80. So unless you have access to a library, you, most people are not going to be able to get this book. And that's really too bad. I wish Rutledge, and I've said this online, I wish Rutledge would start producing uh, uh, versions of these books that people could 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 buy because there would be a market for them. But you know, I don't know anybody there. So uh, all I can say is I wish I wish I could do that. Um, the other book, of course, if you really want to go into the, the weeds of alchemy, you read this one, Volume 14 of the Collected Works, which is Mysterium Conjunctiones. I can never pronounce it. Uh, my whole thing of what I'm working on right now is in along these veins. But this is really, this is probably the, I don't know about you, but I think this is the hardest to read of all of Jung's work because he really goes into the weeds. And alchemy is a metaphorical language with, if you don't have any grounding in another metaphorical language, it's hard. It's hard to really to understand. So that's the other one I, I would recommend. The other little book I found, The Magic Bridge, um, for Herbert Barks, I found as I was reading this book, is the brother of Coleman Barks, who I adore. He is this, the, well, they're both from Georgia, but he's this one, he's a translator of Rumi and Hafez. And I, I saw him live in Toronto where he brings, um, uh, by uh, some musicians and he reads Rumi and he has the most oh, yeah, beautiful he, ones. He did that uh, with Coldplay, right? Didn't he yeah, do that with Coldplay? Uh, he did it. Yeah, he did it Cold Coldplay. Of course, I did not see Coldplay. And I this one was in a church in Toronto. And it was just one of the most magical evenings ever. Him just reading that beautiful, gorgeous voice he has. And um, his own translations of these spiritual, uh, uh, and of course, the whole community. I've kept bumping into people, part of the Sufi group or part of the meditation groups. It's just a beautiful thing. But this is his brother. And it's a great story about aging and about um what you thought where you thought you got you came to and then what happens when life intrudes and it's just beautiful his the stories he tells about people that have been part of his life it's just a a really lovely book um that if you if you just and i think if you people go oh, it's only for older people no actually it's for everybody in your journey he uses a fairy tale to ground it and he works about and he's really telling you 
those parts of your life, and I think this is where it applies to all ages, where you encounter something that you did not expect and it just throws you right off the path, but then you find out in the end that that was the path. And I think that's a great lesson for everybody. It doesn't matter what what age you are or what part of life you're in, you're going to encounter those moments. And then you look back and you think, oh my God, yes, even though included illness or included trauma or included a breakup or included a, an abandonment of a career, there's something about that that was necessary. So that's a lovely little book. Now, the other thing I want to talk about is Richard Rohr, who I absolutely adore. And another person I adore is John Price, who has, I think, one of the best podcasts out there called The Sacred Speaks. And he interviewed Richard Rohr. He interviewed Richard Rohr uh, for, I think, episode 91, if you guys want to look at. I think it's really worth listening to. And I, you know, I love Richard Rohr's written so many books. In fact, the book he's talking about with John in this last episode, I had not even heard he, he uh he, he had written. The two that I always recommend people could start with Richard Rohr's Falling, Falling Upward and The Naked Now, both are fantastic. Richard Rohr is 80 years old. He is a, um, a priest, a Franciscan uh, priest. Uh, and he has just, he just has such a, he's integrated so many different things into his, into his repertoire of understanding. Uh, of course, now he's a very big name because he actually was interviewed by Oprah and, you know, just that put him in a stratospheric kind of thing. But he's a guy who really, really thinks deeply and I just adore his work. The book though, that they were talking about, which I thought was interesting is this one, Quest for the Grail. And the Grail is part of what I'm working on right now, so it's a nice little, co you know, coincidence. And specifically, the story he is mapping in Quest for the Grail is the story of Parsifal. And we've talked about this too, Jay. Uh, the the way he is, what he's really addressing is the problem with the masculine and what how that is impacting men in particular. And there are a couple of books I, I haven't looked. I just thought about it now that I'm looking at this. Is a, a book I really recommend that all men should read and all women as well because I think we don't talk about this enough. Is um, under Saturn's Shadow by James Hollis, where he talks, it's called Wounding and Healing of Men, is the subtitle, I believe, where he talks about just how men have been wounded and how we're not understanding this and how this is impacting women, it's impacting men. It's not really about men. It's just about how all of us are not addressing. And I think given what we're seeing in the world right now, it would be a great book for everybody to read. So Quest for the Girls, same thing. Uh, Richard Rohr did a lot of retreats for men. Uh, all of his life in New Mexico, I believe. And he's talking about the same issue. And he does it through the vehicle, the story of Parsifal, which for those who want to read a very short version of that myth and interpreted psychologically, our favorite person, Jay, Robert A. Johnson wrote, he, <laughs> an inner joke, people, uh, he, uh, where, um, uh, or an in-joke, not an inner joke, although I guess it could be both if I think about it. Anyway, he is uh, the story of the masculine as well told by through the vehicle of again Parsifal if you want to hear the feminine story then you read she right because that's the story of psyche and cupid and that's the story of the feminine and then he wrote we which i think is probably the best easiest book to read on romantic love maybe not the best i think uh, hollis is outdone in there but just the, the kind of tricks of the mind the romantic love play which we've talked about in a previous episode and then another book for those interested in the Grail and is this Peter the Grail, which is fantastic. And finally, a Jungian symbolic reading, the Grail, Arthur and his knights is also fantastic. So those books are all great. And then finally, as a final, oh no, of course, the Grail legend by Emma Young and Von Franz, that would be a great place to start as well. There's so much on the Grail that I, I think it's, it's, it's just, it's just great. Uh, so anyway, that's what I've been reading. And, you know, there's never one book because I always have about seven on the go. Right. And 
because <laughs> I have no discipline. But again, I think this is part of my process. I know you listen to a lot of music and I, I can listen to some of the music. You tell me about it sometimes. I can't impose my books on you because you'd need, you know, you'd be needing right. to read uh, all the time, which you probably don't want to be doing. <laughs> In fact, I think I may be the only person. I find that one of the things about my life that is really hard for me is how hard it is to be so curious about so many different things mm -hmm. and I can't impose them on everybody. Right. Cause my family is on to me and they run away. Uh, my group is on to me. At least they meet with me. Which is great. <laughs> <laughs> and you're pretty good at running away sometimes too, but you're also very patient. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, the, and, and the, some of the books I read, I can't bring to dinner parties, you know, the dinner parties we all go to on a social level, because who the hell wants to talk about the grail, right? Uh, you know, people talk about politics. I wish they would talk about the grail. I think maybe we'd have deeper conversations, but that's not always possible. So anyway, that's where I'm at. And that's probably we, it. <laughs> We've been talking that, so much. Yeah. Um, I, well, I thought you were going to say something, but ask me about what I was listening to. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so, you for the prompt. I asked you, well, actually, I kind of did before. I was asking you what, what you're doing, what your process right now. Oh, see, yeah, I, that's right. See, I assume, I assume when I ask you that question that you'd answer it the way that I answer, which is what am I reading? Because that is my process. So I always assume the part of your creative process is you get interested in certain um, certain listening to certain music. So come uh, yeah, on and I tell do. me what you're listening to. Yeah, so tell uh, me. Something that um, I've, listened to a little bit in the past, but, but haven't, um, much until, you know, the last couple months. So I've really gotten into, uh, Patty Smith. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, like for me, if, if you're gonna, if you're going to, um, you know how much I think of Jeff Buckley, uh, like she would be the only other person I put on his level. Wow. Wow. That's um, yeah. And, um, um, just because, uh, she's, uh, for one, she's so poetic, uh, and she's very unique musically. Uh, and, but I, I think the main thing is the intensity that, that she brings to, uh, through her craft, uh, which is, uh, something that I've always admired and, and wanted to in integrate into my own work. Right. Um, so, uh, I, I really, um, you know, it's very, she actually, when you think of a musician, I would think she's, she's uh, pretty individuated. Yeah. Um, because, okay, she is in the truest sense a punk, but not in uh, a social way in in uh, more of an inward type of thing. And that energy comes out and, and yes, she was part of the punk movement, but um uh, like her music is so much bigger than punk and uh, it's all over the place. And, uh, but it, all of it has a very deep intensity and passion behind it, which is, which is a, a great thing to marry. So. It's funny because of course, once you mentioned Patti Smith, I went out and found a book of interviews that she had done over the years. And, and I mean, she's really, really an interesting thinker. There's no question. I mean, you know, this is where I approach it through a book, although I did, I do listen to the music as well. And yeah, I mean, this is not your ordinary singer, not the ordinary right. thinking of a singer and definitely do not live the path that everybody else uh, lived in terms of what she decided to do. So yeah, very interesting for sure. So good. Okay, well, we'll wrap it up because believe it or not, I think this might be her longest episode. We, we, we're not. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so we'll wrap it up for today. And uh, yeah, and next until next time then.
Thanks for listening. If you like Jay's music and would like to support the creation of more, follow the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes. You can support my work by buying a new novel, Invocation, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time. Oh, yeah.